Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is our first new episode of 2021, uh, and this is Zach Spedden, joined as always by my co-hosts, Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. Today we're going to break down the our new top 30 uh, prospect rankings for the Baltimore Orioles farm system. Uh, you can read the reports on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com once they go on the site. But before we get into our discussion, I have some really good news to report here from Baltimore Sports and Life Radio and for On the Verge, which is that we have a new sponsor in Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Um, we're brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland of Carroll County. For all of your flooring needs, thank Mercer. So thank you to Mercer for coming on this year as a sponsor. And now we'll get into our discussion, which is the top 30 prospect list for BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for the Orioles Farm System, the pre-2021 edition. This is the first time we've updated the list since July, and we had to make a lot of changes owed mainly to players brought in from other organizations and trades that Michael Elias has made since the 2020 season started back in July, as well as some international free agents. Not something that I thought I would say this soon as uh, Orioles podcast host, but here we are in 2021 in what seems to be a new era for this franchise. So I'll start off just by counting down the list from number 30 to number 24. Uh, number 30 is Samuel Basayo, one of the players that the Orioles just signed recently as an international free agent. He was signed out of the Dominican Republic and is a catcher. At number 29 is right-handed pitcher Carter Baumler, the Orioles' fifth-round uh, choice in the June 2020 draft. Uh, ahead of him at number 28 is Anthony Servideo, the uh, middle infielder slash outfielder that the Orioles drafted in the third round back in June. Uh, just above him is right-handed pitcher Garrett Stallings, uh, a player the Orioles acquired for Jose Iglesias in a trade this offseason for the Angels. Um, at number 26 is Tyler Nevin, who came over to the Orioles as part of the trade for Michael Gibbons with the Colorado Rockies back in August. Um, Number 25 is Ryland Bannon, a new addition to the 40-man roster, who, if you've listened to this show in the past, an infielder that all three of us are very high on. And number 24, Michael Hernandez, a shortstop that is earning rave reviews and was just signed as an international free agent out of Venezuela by the Orioles. We're going to start off by discussing Basayo and Hernandez first. And I'll start with you, Nick. What is the significance of the Orioles going out and committing over a million dollars in signing bonuses? or over $2 million combined in signing bonuses for Hernandez and Basayo. Uh, it's huge. As, as an Orioles fan, Like I didn't even know how to really react or process things on, on uh, the other day when these signs became official. I mean, Thankfully, the Orioles kind of gave us the, those quick hits and, and short clips of all of these guys. Uh, I think Basayo and Michael Hernandez are obviously the top two guys, $2.5 million that we've invested in. And just those two, I think Basayo is, what, 16 years old, and Hernandez is barely 17 years old, I believe. 
but I think, you know, looking around is what little information there is on these guys. I think there are some guys further down the list that are also uh, Orioles fans can be excited about. But these two guys, we felt like were good enough to crack our top 30. Uh, I imagine on some bigger national list, they were probably also at least Hernandez. Maybe Basayo will probably get a top 30 nod as well. I mean, you know, you look at Basayo, he's 16 going on like 25 with that beautiful swing from the left side. He's a catcher, but that doesn't matter at all. Like, just stockpile this place with talent. Um yeah, I really I want to jump on a plane now and get down to the Dominican and watch some Dominican baseball when we can. Um, Hernandez looks like a guy that I think you could probably put in high A right now if you wanted to. Obviously, that's not going to happen. He's many years away from even coming to the United States. But you just look at that and it's super exciting when you're talking about a guy like Hernandez getting compared to Alex Rodriguez and Carlos Correa and of course Orioles fans are going to throw out a main Machado comp, but to hear like a Carlos Correa even like. We're used to the Orioles signing guys in the $200,000 range, $150,000 range, guys who are probably going to flame out at like Delmarva, maybe even Aberdeen, or never even come to the United States. And now we're looking at these high caliber guys. Um, you know, you look at the rest of Major League Baseball, and who are some of the top players in all of baseball right now? Like Fernando Tatis, Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna. You've got to hit this market. And when you're starting from nothing, literally nothing, and in two years, a little over two years, we're talking about two guys who are top 30, French top 30 international prospects uh, now joining Birdland. It's, it's extremely exciting. And you know, we'll see once they get to the Dominican Summer League, uh, we can finally see kind of what they're all about for real. But, yeah, couldn't have said it better myself than Nick just laid it out right there. I mean, as a longtime Orioles fan, when uh, the these were announced and we had to – up, I realized I had to see – which of these guys should be on our updated 30? I'm like, how do I even handle this? I have never had to deal with this whatsoever. But I think we ended up with them in a good spot. And, uh, yeah, Hernandez seems like, obviously, Machado-esque, where he's a big, bigger guy for a shortstop. Smooth, natural motions at the position. Seems like he could stay there. Nice, smooth swing. But Basalo, man, offensively, he he's kind of tantalizing. Big dude. Nice swing. Going to have some real power, see if he can get into games. But just think last year, we were excited that we signed a couple guys for like 400000 around there. Now we got eight of them and two over a million. Next year, I think you might see us maybe sign one of the top 10 richest contracts uh, of the international class. That would show continued progress. But needless to say, we've arrived on the international front, and it's exciting to have that pipeline as elias would say uh, now coming straight to our house you know the thing that i like in reading reports about both basayo and hernandez is that it doesn't look like these are going to be first base d8 type guys basayo i think you have a little bit of a question of that he's you know six three i think listed about 190 pounds as a 16 year old how big is he going to get um but you hear rave reviews about his arm so I feel like, first of all, as Nick said, there's no harm in stockpiling talent behind the plate. Um, that's worked out quite well for the San Diego Padres. And if the Orioles want to start following that template, it's a good one. And the other thing is that if Basayo does have to move out from behind the plate, I think there's reasonable hope, based on what we know right now, that it won't be the D8s. It could be the third base. Maybe if we find the speed and the agility are a little bit better than what his size suggests, you end up with a left fielder that has a good arm. Yeah, there's some possibilities there, and the same with Hernandez. Um, the Orioles, when you look at him and when you look at some guys we're going to get to later on in this show, 
um, including Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westberg, the Orioles are assembling a lot of up-the-middle infield talent, and it's really exciting to see. Yeah, I think with, with Basala, too, I mean, he's 16 years old, so even if he stays at catcher, like Adley Rutschman's going to be pushing 30 and moving to first base by the time Basala reaches the major league. So, I mean, it's yeah, the video was a lot of fun to watch. Shout out to that Orioles player development and their social media account for putting out those videos for all of their guys. So at least we have some faces, some swings, some throws, or whatever it may be to associate with these guys. It's nice to be able to look at them uh, and and first of all, have these top talents. So there are more videos out there to see of them, but to put faces to names and such, and not just, oh, he signed for $700,000. He must be good. Like we can see Basala's swing. That is a beautiful swing. It's, it doesn't take a scout to see that that swing is something special. Um, you know, they're both 16, 17 year olds. So a lot can happen over the next few years, but this is a start and it's a really good start. Yeah. Just get natural athletes that, at least at their age, can play these positions up the middle, and then you go from there and adjust accordingly. If they've got the skills to play those positions, then I'm sure they can adjust down the scale uh, defensively. And while we're on this topic, um, from a personnel perspective, this is a name we have not mentioned a lot on this show, even though we've been on the air for about a year now, and that's Kobe Perez. Uh, He and his team did an excellent job, uh, it looks like, in this international signing period. He's the director of international scouting for the Orioles. Definitely someone that's high on the depth chart in uh, Michael Elias' regime and someone who I'm really excited to see what he's going to do for this organization over the coming years. So when you start thinking about the Orioles' front office and who's key to this rebuild, Kobe Perez is now officially in that conversation if he wasn't already. Absolutely. I mean, obviously it'll be many years before we really know how well he's doing as far as results, but the process is there. He's proven that he's gotten the Orioles in uh, where they need to be. Speaking of a player that we're kind of years away from realizing his potential, that's our number 29 prospect, Carter Balmer, who was drafted out of high school in the fifth round back in June, uh, pitched briefly down in Sarasota at Instructs before having Tommy John surgery at the end of October. Uh, Balmer ranked 27th in our list in July, and even with the injury and the fact that he likely will not pitch until at least the beginning of the 2022 season, um, all three of us still had Baumler inside of our top 30 when we put the list together. And aggregating those together, which Bob did a good job of, we ended up with Baumler at 29. So, Bob, what made you comfortable uh, keeping Baumler on the list, even though you know that he's at least over a year away from getting back on the mound? Well, nothing really made me comfortable about where to rank him. That was actually really tough. One of the tougher names on my list. Um, just because he's so young, he hasn't really pitched in an organization other than I don't even know how long he he had actually at the alternate site or the fall instructionals. Um, but the arm talent is there. There's a reason they drafted him fifth and gave him over slot money. It's because he's a, a bigger kid for his age with a great arm. And it's his elbow that he injured. So. That gives me a little more confidence than, say, a shoulder injury or, you know, one of those more <laughs> tendons or ligaments that doesn't usually bounce back quite as well. But even if he doesn't pitch this year, which he won't, but even if he he comes back 2022 and slowly warms up into it, he's still going to be super young and have plenty of time to get back on track. There's been plenty of pitchers that have had Tommy John surgery and come back better, if not as good. So, yeah, I'm. I'm feel pretty much the same as I did when we drafted him 
obviously a little more risk now involved. Yeah, he's only 18 years old too. So like I think we mentioned before on the show, it's if it's going to happen, he got it out of the way now super early. Um, I guess the only thing, the only hiccup in this would be that he had his senior year of high school wiped away because of COVID. And now he's got his first year of pro ball wiped away. So I mean, you're looking at like over two calendar years in between him getting on the mound and pitching. Uh, but the, the age is a real benefit for him. I think at this point, you, you watch some of the videos that are out there. And I mean, the, the curveball looks like a great pitch. He's already throwing reports having like 93, 94 miles an hour as an 18 year old. This guy who's a, a TCU commit to play. I think he even had some interest to play football and a kicker punter, but still, I mean, so you can see his athleticism there uh, as a young kid. Uh, so I think I felt semi-comfortable putting him in the top 30. Um, there are some other pieces that I think are more major league ready, close to the major leagues that we could have probably put in there. Uh, but when you look at like the ceiling, like Baumler is still a guy that you look at as a potential starting pitcher in the major leagues uh, at this point. So yeah, having him in the back end of the top 30 and then watching him rise up the ranks, I don't see a problem with that. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping for is that we see Baumler, once he's back on the mound, steadily rise up. And that's what I expect can happen. Uh, this is someone who, when I look at, I still have a lot of hope for is him settling in as a major league starter because of the athleticism, because of the curveball already drawing good marks. And the fastball, you know, there are signs that he could increase his velocity a little bit. I think he was generally in the low 90s in high school, but that velocity has the potential to move up. It's just that we're not going to get a chance to look at him until early 2022. But for now, we still, the three of us feel like he's a top 30 prospect and he ranks 29th on this list. Ahead of him is someone who is new to the Orioles' farms, or excuse me, yes, new to the Orioles' farm system, a uh, shortstop drafted back in June in Anthony Servideo out of Ole Miss. Um, the big question with Servideo, and Nick noted this in his report, which is on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com, is whether or not the improvements we saw in the abbreviated 2020 season with him at the plate um, are going to carry over to pro ball but as you noted nick there's a lot of other tools with servideo to like yeah i think the rest of these guys in this portion of the list that we're talking about servideo stallings and nevin the important thing for me that that i see with these three and others that we're going to talk about further up the list is that they kind of raise the overall floor of the entire organization like servideo may not develop into a future starting shortstop for the baltimore orioles but I mean, his glove can play multiple positions. It's just about major league ready as is, uh, and he's got real good speed uh, on the base paths as well. So you look at the glove that can play multiple positions. You got the speed on the base paths. Uh, someone who can get on base at a high clip. Uh, I think you're looking at someone who kind of does everything well. And so over the course of a game, that's going to add up. Or if you're late in a game and you need somebody who can work a deep at bat and, and draw that walk and steal that base, turn a single into a double. Servideo is that guy. Um, and it, he's a true shortstop prospect, too, that, that I mentioned. You know, this is someone who is going to stick at that position. And like you mentioned, the big question, though, is that bat. How, how well does that hit tool develop? And I, I go back to right after he was drafted and we had Dr. Stephen Loftus on. He was pretty high on Servideo's bat, at least for it to, to, to develop. He believed that his, I think it was his junior season at Ole Miss uh, was the last he saw. He thought those numbers were legit, and that could be a sign of something to come in the future. So I, I hope he's right because Servideo is a real interesting piece that I'm excited to watch make his debut this year. Yeah, the surest sign that the Orioles' farm system is improving 
is this is a guy who I didn't even have on my list, but I do consider him eligible to be in the top 30. I think it makes sense. I mean, he's better than a guy like Caden Grenier, who has been in our top 30 in the past. I have him better than a Graffinino, maybe even a Richie Martin type. So I think that's pretty impressive that a guy like that still just missed my top 30 personally, but he did make ours. And everything Nick said is spot on. I mean, this is a guy, he's got good defense, uh, known for, I think, his intensity and leadership on the in college. And the bat, it showed flashes. Obviously, with the shortened season, it's hard to tell how how uh, permanent those changes are, but the Orioles liked him. They must have liked his exit velocity because they like that about everyone they draft. Uh, so, yeah, I'm pretty excited to see what he can do once he actually gets to play in the minor leagues. So here's a stat I really like about Servideo, and it's something that um, Stephen Loftus really emphasized when he was on our show back over the summer. Uh, a career 89 to 78 strikeout to walk ratio. This is a guy that clearly has good control of the strike zone, and it makes me believe that even if the power and the contact tool don't quite come around, that he's still going to find ways to get on base at a good enough clip to take advantage of his speed. Yeah, that, that's what you want, too. You want somebody late in the game, if you can bring him off the bench, and he can go, and he's, you know, even bringing him off the bench in the fifth, sixth inning, if he's, a, if he's starting, and you're in the fifth or sixth inning, you're trying to wait on a starting pitcher, and he can work a walk, uh, and then you see that 90% stolen base success rate in college, that's going to translate into the major leagues. That's going to make an impact on the game. And if you bring him off the bench later in the game, you know, that's going to really help work a bullpen uh, later in the game. So, I mean, Servideo is, is, again, he's a really high floor guy. And even if the, the bat doesn't come around, uh, I think comp- I always compare these guys to like a, a Stevie Wilkerson or your, even Pat Vileka's and those guys that we watched last year. You know, Servideo is someone who does a lot of things right. Uh, it, even if he does hit like a 220, 230 across a, a full season, if he can steal you multiple bases and use that glove, he's going to be an asset for you. So, yeah. so I'm going to kind of lump the next two prospects together in our discussion because both of them were acquired in trades, although they're really two different types of players. One of them is our 27th-ranked prospect, uh, Garrett Stallings, a starting pitcher who was acquired um, just a few months ago in the trade for Jose Iglesias. Uh, we're not going to get into the discussion about the quality of that trade again, which I know is polarizing, but there is a show in our archives where we discuss the trade at length. We all three liked it. Uh, and then just ahead of him at number 26 is Tyler Nevin, uh, one of the two, one of the three players the Orioles acquired uh, from the Rockies, from Michael Givens back in August. I think, as Nick said earlier, these are two players that really do raise the floor of the farm system. Because in Stallings, you have a guy who does not throw hard, but virtually does not walk anybody, generates ground balls, and gets really good uh, re- you know, reports about his makeup and his ability to locate his pitches. So this is somebody that I'm really interested to follow and reasonably could be expected to begin the year at one of the A-ball levels, uh, maybe high A. And then Nevin is a guy that uh, knows how to get on base, knows how to work the strike zone, has not hit for a ton of power other than the one season he had in the notoriously hitter-friendly California League. But again, a a guy who does a lot of little things right, probably going to start the year in AAA, and I would have to think 
because of the fact he's already on the 40-man roster, that if the Orioles aren't getting the production they want from D.J. Stewart or another one of their first-base corner outfield bats, that Chris we can Davis. see Nevin pretty early in 2021. Yeah, sorry, I don't know who you were addressing. <laughs> oh, no, so yeah, I, I was going to address you, Bob. What do you, what do you okay, say? Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is interesting that these guys are kind of neck and neck with each other because I think I was the high guy on Stallings between us. I just feel like there must be something there beyond what we know from what we have uh, available to us information-wise that Elias targeted him so early in the offseason for what seemed like such a tradable asset in Iglesias. So I feel like they must know something with his analytics that uh, gives them hope for him. And I know they saw him over in the Angels uh, summer camp. And um, as far as Nevin, I I didn't have him in my top 30. Again, another guy that just missed was in the 31 to 35 range for me. Uh, He's just such, uh, to me, a boring prospect. Steady guy that's, you know, first base, but not a first baseman that's like clobbering the ball. Just kind of... If we need a guy, like you said, he'll come up, probably do a pretty solid job, but I don't think he's ever going to be a guy that's like a, a mainstay in the lineup. But these are players you need to have, and the Orioles actually don't have much depth at first base, at least in the upper levels of their uh, farm system. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, Elias is great at acquiring these kind of guys, and we'll have to see how it pans out because I don't know if – Anyone that he's traded for has made it to the major league level yet, but it'll be interesting because they're coming very soon. Yeah, I think I I can see where you're, you're right about we're I mean, talking about Tyler Nevin. Uh, I mean, he doesn't really have like this high ceiling. He doesn't really have like this tool that really sticks out that you're like, whoa, that's amazing. Um, but I, I think I had him in my top thirty just because I mean he's he's safe. I think for me, that's why I had him in there. Um, you know, he walks a lot. Uh, he hasn't really played much. I think he had, you know, one healthy season since being drafted in, was it 2015? Yeah. I mean, he's the 30th overall pick in 2015, and his first full season was in 2019. It was a good season, you know, 345 on base percentage, a 122 WRC plus, uh, and that was at the AA level. Uh, so, you know, he's real close to the major leagues. But, yeah, I, I still believe that DJ Stewart doesn't have long and I think if he struggles, if you look at like a Pat Vileka, if he struggles uh, or goes back to being Pat Vileka, because th- that bat, like uh, we all know my opinion about Pat Vileka, but the bat was impressive last year coming off the bench. But if that bat doesn't come back, then I think Nevin is a guy that you look at, at coming off the bench. And, and like you said, the Orioles really haven't had a first base prospect in a very long time. I don't know if you count Mountcastle as one, um, but I mean, you've got guys like really your backup first baseman was a guy like David Washington a couple years ago who I remember who would I think he went like 0 for 20 with 20 strikeouts in the major leagues when he got a taste he could hit the ball 500 feet but he's going to strike out 90 percent of the time uh and Tyler Nevin is not that kind of guy um and, and then with Stallings you know he's he's another safe guy 250 college innings he only walked 37 batters and he was a Friday night starter in the SEC at Tennessee so I mean and he's number 27 on our list and this is what I, I loved. I think all of us, 20 through 30 was the hardest to put to put together on our list uh, just because there's so many new faces, you know, high floor, higher ceiling, where do we go? Uh, we didn't know exactly where to put these guys. Um, but I went back to like two, 2017 at the Orioles list on like MLB Pipeline, for example. I mean, we had guys at the bottom of the list like a Milton Ramos and Irving Ortega's uh, and uh, Randolph Gassaway. That's a name from the past. Like you had those guys in the bottom third of the top 30 list. 
Most of those guys aren't in baseball anymore. Uh, Joe Marais, you know, he punched the wall, and I don't know where he's been at since. Like, he's gone. Like, and now you're talking about Tyler Nevin, who, yeah, he may not be exciting, but like, he's going to be a really good piece off the bench. Like, and that's, again, just something small to show the big improvements that this farm system is making. Yeah, I ended up with Nevin in my top 30, although I understand Bob's point. It's not the most exciting prospect profile. He's a guy who plays, I think he profiles best in first base and left field, but he has gotten some third base. And he's, you know, he's adequate at all three of those positions by most reports, but isn't really a standout defender. He walks a lot, consensus is he has a good eye. But I think offensively, and it's kind of interesting because he was taking two picks behind Ryan Mountcastle in the same draft. And their offensive profiles are almost the exact opposite uh, as minor leaguers. Mountcastle, you had concerns about whether or not he could walk, would he strike out too much, but no one questioned the power. No one questioned his power, and Nevin is the exact opposite. He can walk a lot, he can get on base, he's not going to give away at bats, but is the power really there for a corner guy? So I kind of understand where Bob's coming from in the end. I think I had him a couple of spots higher than where he ended up on this list. I think I had him at 24th, um, just because I think the floor is high enough that if nothing else, you have a good role player and somebody who could make an impact in the major leagues in the near future. Yeah, and he's like he's, you mentioned Chris Davis. I mean, he's already better than Chris Davis, so there you go. That's yeah, it's good enough. <laughs> yes, um, I think Chris Saw would be an upgrade over Chris Davis at this point. <laughs> Uh, so number Chris 20, Singleton would be, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Chris Singleton right now, Chris Singleton in 1977. It doesn't matter. Anybody. Yes. Anybody with a pulse at this point. It'd be cheaper at least. Uh, 2021 is officially underway. We just had a discussion about Chris Davis. Um, yes. So number 25 is someone we've discussed a lot on this show and it's Rylan Bannon. If you've listened to the show in the past, you know that all three of us like him. Um, second baseman, third baseman, who has a good profile with a bat. Looks like, if nothing else, he's going to be a guy that sticks around the major leagues for a while as basically, uh, lacking a better way to say it, maybe a Hondra Alberto with a little more power um, might be his floor. Um, he was added to the 40-man roster this offseason. So right now, and I'll start with you, Nick, Given that the Orioles still have not addressed the whole left at shortstop by Jose Iglesias, do you think it could be reasonably expected that Bannon would be the opening day starter at second base? Yeah, actually, I mean, I actually had that written down in my notes that I wouldn't be shocked to see Rylan Bannon get a starting job in 2021. I know Orioles fans, that's not the most exciting, uh, but you know, I think he's a solid bridge to the Jordan Westbergs and the Gunnar Hendersons and those guys. I think you're going to see a, a rotating door of guys like with Yolmer Sanchez and everybody rotating between second base and third base. Who knows what Rio Ruiz has? I don't know how many people are still holding out hope that there's something there with him, but it doesn't sound like the Orioles are going to bring in anybody. Uh, I don't even know who's left. Yeah, they could still bring in Freddie Galvis, which was solidified shortstop, but you still got holes at second base and third base. Uh, so I think Bannon has really good shot at, at getting one of those jobs. Um, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, Again, not exciting, but I think he can be a league average bat and play reasonable defense. He's got pretty good range over at second base. The arm, I'm not a big fan of at third base, but I like him at second base uh, for a year or two uh, until one of these more elite prospects comes up through the system. Yeah, as it stands right now, I could see him getting 
basically every day at bats between second and third base, alternating as it's you know as it suits the Orioles. I think Yomer Sanchez might be the starting shortstop right now. Um, I'd rather see him at second base, but who knows what's going to happen with that? So I d- we've talked him to death. He's a he is what he is. He's going to be a, either a fringe starter or pretty solid reserve in all likelihood. But excited to see him get a shot at the major league level this year. So that does it for the 24 through 30 portion of our list. And now we're going to move up to players 23 through 20. Coming into 23 is left-handed pitcher Bruce Zimmerman, who got a brief look with the Orioles at the end of last season. And right now, uh, if we went, if spring training started tomorrow, uh, would probably be a contender for the fifth spot in the rotation. Number 22 is outfielder Ryan McKenna. Number 21 is fellow outfielder Kyle Stowers. And then number 20 is right-handed pitcher Kyle Bradis, who was one of the players that the Orioles acquired from the Angels in the trade for Dylan Bundy last year. Let's start with Zimmerman, who got a cup of coffee at the end of last season, struggled in his debut against the Tampa Bay Rays um, as a starter, but then had a good relief appearance um, at Fenway Park during the Orioles' final road trip to end the year on a high note. Right now, given that the Orioles have not added another starting pitcher, I would have to think that he and Jorge Lopez go in the camp as the top contenders for the fifth spot in the rotation. But I'll start with you, Bob. Even if Zimmerman does end up back in Norfolk uh, to start the 2021 season, do you think we see him at all in 2021? And if so, what kind of role do you think he plays um, in the short term and in the long term? I think we absolutely will see him at the major league level in 2021. Um, I do think he'll probably start the year in Norfolk's rotation, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was that swing guy out of the bullpen like we saw against the Red Sox in that game where he actually looked pretty decent. I think that's kind of the role that suits him the best, unless he can make another improvement over the offseason. I just don't think he's a guy that's going to go two or three times through a lineup and still be able to get many outs. Um but I think he could be good as a bridge uh, between the starter and the back end of the bullpen. Yeah, and you got to think, too, we're going from a 60-game schedule to 162-game schedule, it looks like, that MLB is going to go with. So, I mean, teams are going to be needing – you see a lot of teams. I know, like, the the Angels, for instance, have said they're going to a six-man rotation. And some other teams have already said they want six major league starters on their active roster to at least start the year. Uh, so if you're the Orioles, you know – I've there's been the reports that they have major league offers out to guys, um, which I'm assuming is like a million dollar deal to like Julio Tehran like type deals. But I mean, which is fine as like a fifth starter because you have means Cobb, Aiken and Kramer, which makes a pretty solid, I think top four rotation, at least better than what we've seen in the past. So I think Zimmerman is a guy who probably does start the year in triple A. Cause I don't think Jorge Lopez has options. Um, I have to look, look at that, but um, Zimmerman does, he can start the year in AAA, get back to a normal routine. And then even if he is just a guy who can come work three, four innings out of a bullpen um, or go through a lineup one time, I, I think there's value there. And I think he's more than capable of doing that. I don't see him as a starter in the long term, but I think over the next year or two, he's definitely going to, can provide value in that long relief or spot starter type role, especially as we transition back to full season baseball. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't. I still have questions about whether he's going to stick in the majors as a starter. But I think if nothing else, the Orioles could have a guy that's capable of working through the lineup out of the bullpen once. So maybe a six to nine out type relief pitcher that 
as Bob said, could be the bridge between your starters um, and the back end of your bullpen. Um, I am curious, though, and this is probably a discussion that we'll have once spring training gets underway, as to how the Orioles want to manage the rotation um, over the first month or two of the season, just to not put too much wear and tear on their starters. And in that case, maybe there is a role for Zimmerman at the onset of the season. But for right now, he's number 23 on our top prospect list. And we'll move up now to number 22, and that's outfielder Ryan McKenna. What you're going to see as we get further into this countdown is that a lot of outfield talent has been added to the farm system um, since we did this list the first time last January. So as a result, McKenna has slid from about the mid-teens in January of last year down into the 20s. Um, but I'll start with you, Nick. There's been some questions about the bat since McKenna's offense kind of lagged from 2019 or lagged uh, in production in 2019 compared to 2018 when he broke out. Do you think with uh, more time in the minors, we could start seeing the hit tool come back around a little bit? I think so. I mean, Norfolk's a pretty good place, I feel like, to to find your swing again if you're a hitter, just because that outfield is so big. And that whole bar, ballpark plays so big that, you know, guys like a McKenna who can, if you get back to your line driveways and, and stop trying to knock the ball out of, over the fence, which is really hard to do down at Norfolk, uh, if he can get back to that style of play that I think you saw more in 2018 – Maybe he gets more comfortable, the confidence increases for McKenna, and he takes a shot at the major league roster. Uh, you know, I think McKenna's ceiling, I think, is higher than that of Cedric Mullins because, you know, McKenna does have that power. It's, it's elite, elite speed on the base paths um, and in the outfield. So I, I think he's a touch better, I think, the ceiling than Cedric Mullins. Uh, but it's just a matter of can he find that 2018 swing again versus the 2019 swing, which is good. Uh, but, you know, the numbers were down. And he seems to be a guy that I think a lot of Orioles fans have kind of forgotten because Cedric Mullins did break out last year. So uh, I think he's definitely going to start the year in Norfolk. He's going to have that center field job. Uh, and it's just a matter of, of how hot does he start next year. We'll see. Yeah, I really wish McKenna would have got a cup of coffee at the major league level at the end of last year because I feel like he's really suffering from prospect fatigue in the middle of the list here. Even though it's not his fault, I mean, he last played in 2019 in AA, but it just seems like his name has been hanging around forever, right in the middle of a top 30. And I think he's a guy that Orioles fans, they seem to not like when they're just looking at his name on a list, but I think he's the kind of player that they will enjoy watching his defense in the outfield and his speed on the bases. So I really hope he gets an early look and can kind of set a new tone for his uh, whereabouts on this list here. I, I've always liked the speed in the defense with McKenna, and I think I raised the point a few times last season that if the Orioles had brought McKenna up late, they, if nothing else, would have had good reinforcements in the later innings as someone who could come in and pinch run, get that extra base, steal a base, and then play center field really well. I think ultimately because of how Cedric Mullins exceeded expectations, last year, and the fact that Austin Hayes uh, came back before the season ended and actually looked better when he got off the injured reserve list, um, that he, or the injured list, that the Orioles really didn't need McKenna. But I think over a 162-game season, we're going to see him at some point, even if it is just in that sort of fourth outfield type role. Uh, We'll move up now to number 21, and that's outfielder Kyle Stowers. Uh, 2019 draft pick out of Stanford. 
someone that we have not seen a whole lot of, but that earned um, pretty high praise for his raw power. And I'm going to go back to Nick here, because Nick, you actually just wrote about Stowers uh, recently in a piece looking at players you're excited to see in 2021. And then you um, came up with this report for us for the top 30 countdown. What do you see in Stowers and why should Orioles fans watch him closely next year? I think mainly it's just, it's a guy that I've been just attracted to as a prospect since he joined the system. Uh, but I mean, he hits the ball extremely hard and he's a left-handed hitter. Uh, two things that would play pretty well at Camden Yards if he ever reaches that. But I mean, like you mentioned, high praise for the exit velocity numbers at Stanford. I think some of the highest in college baseball uh, his last year in 2019. Um, he was in Delmarva, didn't play 55 games. But he did get six home runs, 20 extra base hits. I mean, that's impressive. He was an all-star in the New York Penn League, which now no longer exists. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of strikeout in his game. Uh, there are a lot of holes in the swing. Uh, there's a lot of risk there with him. But, you know, if he can hit for a higher average, you definitely have someone that's that I think is interesting. Um, He's just one of these outfield guys who I think that you hope develops because we're all high on Diaz and Kerstad, obviously. And then you've got Mountcastle. Uh, you've got Santander, maybe, for a while. Apparently, he's getting traded now. Um, you've got a pretty good outfield, Hayes. So Stowers is a guy who I look at as, if anything, if he can develop, that's one of your, your big trade pieces in a year or two uh, down the road that you add to get a starting pitcher talent or fill a major league hole. Um, this is started that this the beginning of that whole process where just stockpile the talent and Stowers is one of those guys. If he breaks out, fantastic. If you know, and if he's a trade piece, he's a trade piece. Uh, but I think he's a quality piece that we'll see. Uh, I want to see what he does in, in back in Del Marva. He'll probably end up high as Aberdeen now. Uh, he'll probably start the year in Aberdeen. We'll see what he does there, which will kind of dictate what happens at that point. But he's a guy that I'm excited to watch. Man, the guy can't get out of Aberdeen. He ends his 2019 season in Aberdeen, and he starts his 2021 season in Aberdeen. Now, this is a guy where I think him not playing in 2020, for me, my expectations really hurt himself because, well, not his control, but I just, from what I saw in 2019, he, he could have probably just been worn down after a long college season and never really just got off uh at the minor league level and a nice clean off season where he could have built back up and worked on things. And, uh, he could have bounced back last year, but I just, I couldn't put him on my list. He was another guy that was just outside of my top 30, just from what I've seen personally, it wasn't there, but clearly the potential is there. And I hope he really, uh, straightens me out real quick with a nice hot start to the 2021 season. And I can put him back on my 30. Yeah, he's a guy that could move up quite a bit for me if he is able to cut back on the strikeouts. Um, you know, so we'll see. It's looking like right now the A-ball levels in double-A are probably not going to start until at least May. But we'll see what Stowers looks like when he gets back on the field. Because like Bob said, I feel like he's a guy whose reputation as a prospect didn't improve in 2020 because it couldn't. And you really, 2020 was going to be a year where we learned a lot more about him. And unfortunately, we just couldn't get to that point. But he'll definitely be someone worth following uh, in 2021. At number 20 is Kyle Bradis. Uh As I mentioned earlier, this is one of the pitching prospects that the Orioles acquired in the deal that sent Dylan Bundy to Los Angeles. Uh, Bradis is a guy who had, you know, decent results, I think, all things considered, in the California League back in 2019. 
probably ticketed for double A this year. Um, Bob, I'll start with you. There's some questions right now about Braddis, whether or not he's going to stick as a starter long term or if he's going to move to the bullpen. Even if he does end up in Bowie's rotation uh, to start 2021, where do you see him fitting in down the road? Based on what you heard from the media all summer long in 2020, seems like he's rocketing up towards potential long-term starter. But like you said, even if that doesn't work out, he's got that slider and fastball combination that could work out really well out of the bullpen. But it just seemed like any time you got a report from the summer camp or the fall instructional league, his was the name that popped up. And you kept hearing him, uh, like John Mioli said he was just outside of his top 10 for Baseball America, I think, at least on the podcast that I listened to. And there's other people that are just really high on Bradish. So it kind of makes me believe that he's taken a leap, but it's hard hard to say because we haven't seen it uh, in action to prove it, which is pretty much the case for everybody here. It's a lot of guesswork, but seems like reports are good. So to me, that sounds good. I think for me, it was just the fact that he made his debut in high A and did have that success. 101 innings, uh, a 4.28 ERA, but a 4.08 FIP. Uh, I mean, in high strikeout rate, 27% strikeout rate. The walks were, were pretty high, but when you watch his delivery, I mean, it's it's funky. It hurts to sit back and kind of watch his delivery a little bit, uh, but it works for him. A lot of moving parts. Uh, it's It's an awkward angle, I think, for hitters. So I think that's why a lot of people maybe view him as a relief option. Uh, come in for an inning, throw that, that high power fastball, big curveball uh, with that funky delivery. You're you're going to be effective. Uh, but like you said, uh, Orioles seem to want to be able to stretch him out, and, and that would be great if he develops into a starter. And then you have an Isaac Matson who you know didn't crack our top thirty, but is probably could probably make the Orioles opening day roster. Uh, we start to see returns from that Dylan Bundy trade, uh, which is which is always a good thing. We're going to see returns from that trade before we see returns from the Manny Machado trade. I think at this point, but. Yeah, Bradish is a guy who he's 20 now, but I could see jumping up pretty significantly in our list because, like you said, there are a lot of other people out there that, that we've talked to that are much higher on him. But you know, I, I got to see it first. But, so. Yeah, I was in the same position as the two of you when it came to Bradish. I want to see it first before I commit, but I do think that when the time comes for us to update this list in July, um, a good start at double A and a little bit more confidence that he's going to stick in the rotation. He's going to be comfortably inside the top 15 in my view at that point. Um, so Braddis is definitely somebody that I'm really looking forward to watching. And I think it's very possible that he ends up higher than 20 within um, the next six months. But for right now, I, I think it's a ranking that's reasonable just given that we don't have much to go on because of the amount of time that he missed. and some of the questions about his command, which we kind of want to see him throw a little bit more before we determine how to, you know, how to feel about that long term. Um, we'll move up the list now, and this is the last group of prospects before we get into the top 15. At number 19 is Hudson Haskin, a 2020 draft pick out of Tulane, an outfielder. Number 18, a new addition to the 40-man roster, though a guy that's been uh, consistently a top 30 prospect for the last few years, and that's left-handed pitcher Alexander Wells. Number 17 is a fellow Southpaw in Drew Rahm, who had a really sharp 2019 season at Del Marva, uh, and somebody who will get back on the mound in 2021. And at number 16, another left-handed pitcher. This one is Kevin Smith, who was acquired in the Miguel Castro trade with the New York Mets 
back in August and should pitch at the higher levels of the minor league system in 2021. We'll start with Haskin, though. Um, had a successful career at Tulane, but the one nag question that comes up, the one nagging question that comes up with him is the swing. A lot of scouts have noted the swing's a little unorthodox. There's questions about how that's going to work for him at the professional level. Um, I'll start with you, Bob. What are your thoughts on Haskins? I don't have many other than just reading a scouting report. Unfortunately, I haven't seen him play, but I have seen video. And, yeah, I guess to me, the exit velocity, it must be enticing. And I feel like a guy that has something a little bit off about him, a little bit a little bit uh, outside of the ordinary, is a guy that you can kind of get. He could be getting underrated based off of, you know, what people are supposed to look like when they swing the bat. Maybe he can make it work for them and they have some kind of analytics to back that up. I'm not sure, but he is definitely a guy I'm like, I need to watch him play early on in 2021 and just get a read for exactly what his game is. Yeah, it's, I think the comp was like Hunter Pence. It's a Hunter Pence-esque swing, which worked for him. He had a long, successful career. But yeah, Haskin, you know, we don't watch a lot of Tulane baseball. Uh, I, I love mid-major, <laughs> smaller college athletics, uh, but Tulane baseball isn't on my radar. But yeah, you read the scouting reports, and they say that he could fit at all three outfield spots, and he does have that speed, and you see the numbers that he put up in college. He got on base at a high rate. A lot of extra base hits, a lot of stolen bases, but again, you know, that's Tulane, so, you know, it's a mid-major conference. He's not facing the Floridas and Vanderbilts and, and those guys. Uh, but you know, I've also seen reports that say the Orioles probably won't touch his swing or shouldn't touch his swing. To see what he does in the lower levels of the minor first levels of the minor league first, uh, and see what see what happens from there. But you know, again, this is another high ceiling outfield outfielder that the Orioles have, and there's just so deep this outfield position that it's going to force the guys like Diaz and McKenna's and those guys to really step it up this year because there are some guys in the lower levels of the minors with high ceilings that could be right on their tails pretty quickly. Yeah, Haskin, I think that, you know, that's probably a smart move for the Orioles to not zero in on his swing right away. Let him come in with what he's used to and what was worked for him at Tulane and see how that works in the lower levels of the minors before uh, you start looking at making any changes. But as Nick said, the one comp that was thrown around a lot was Hunter Pence. And Hunter Pence, he had an unorthodox swing, that is true, but he also had a really good major league career. So... Once we actually see Haskin for ourselves, uh, if he's hitting the ball well, and I'm guessing he will be at one of the A-ball levels to start 2021, if he's hitting the ball well, he's somebody I expect will move up uh, pretty quickly. And number 18 is a prospect we're a lot more familiar with, and that's Alexander Wells, the left-hander who does not throw hard, but virtually does not walk anybody. And that has been a calling card for success with him. Uh, since he was signed as an international free agent back in 2015. Last pitch in competitive game action at Bowie in 2019, and has worked out in his native Australia during the pandemic. Uh, looks ticketed for AAA. There are still some questions, though, about long-term. Does what's worked for him at the lower levels of the minors work at AAA in the major leagues? And does he look more like a starter or a reliever? So I'll start with Nick on this one. Uh, what do you see in, well, in Wells as he heads into what's going to be a big season for him because he's now on the 40-man roster and now pretty close to the major leagues? 
I mean, all the reports seem pretty high on him. It seems like Michael Elias is really high on Alex Wells that that he could make his major league debut pretty soon. He's the guy that has to prove it for me again. I, I'm going to be totally honest and say that I'm pretty low on Wells at this point. Uh, he's a guy that I, he's it's his command, you know, that's got him up to this point. So it's it's fantastic command, some of the best command you'll find in all of minor league baseball. But he was was stuck in Australia all year in 2020. He wasn't at Bowie. He wasn't at Instructs. He was supposed to pitch in the Australian Baseball League, but that league's been kind of ravaged by COVID. The Orioles pulled him out of that league before it even started. Um, he was supposed to be teammates with Manny Ramirez. That could have been fun to watch, but um, that didn't happen. So it's been a long time since he's pitched. And when you you don't have that velocity and you rely so much on your command, I'm worried about how will all that time off from competitive game action hurt that command. I, I just don't know. And now he's going to have to come back to the United States and face off against AAA hitters. Um, we'll see how he does, but I just don't know. He doesn't really do it for me anymore, to be totally honest. <laughs> That's fair. That's totally fair. Um, they put him on the 40 man. So clearly they think enough of him to do that and give him at least a chance to stick at the major league level. I feel like this is a guy, you know, a lot of times you see when a guy comes up, you know, give him time to adjust, give him time to adjust. I feel like with Wells, we're going to know pretty quickly whether he's, cut out for the major league level or not. I mean, either the command is going to be enough to overcome the stuff disparity or it's not. I don't I think it's going to be pretty cut and dry, but I'm hoping he gets a chance early on and I'm hoping he proves Nick wrong and becomes the ace of the staff. Me too. Yeah, I, I agree. I hope that Wells, you know, gets in and really is able to silence a lot of the doubts surrounding him. Uh, I wrote this back last month and it was something I wanted to bring up again about Wells. And this is really the key for me going into 2021 because we saw him do this in 2019. Um, his 2018 at Frederick, by his standards, was not a great year. But then in 2019, he goes to Bowie, uh, cuts his home run rate in half, uh, posts his best ground ball rate at any full season level at uh, rounding it up to 42%, um, and was also able to improve his strikeout and walk numbers. So that's the type of improvements that I want to see from him at Norfolk next year. Um, I suspect that we're going to see him in the majors, but when he does get into Norfolk's rotation, at least over that first month or two, the ground ball numbers, the home run numbers, uh, are really going to be the areas that I watch, because I know he's not going to walk batters, but I want to see what the strikeouts do, what the home runs do, and the ground ball rate looks like. And he's he's been an all-star at every single level that he's pitched at, so I, I will give him that. I mean, the pedigree's there. I'm just curious to see what that time off will do to him. Even in the future game, but I just wonder how he's going to do with the aerodynamic base major league baseball compared to the minor league baseball. So number seventeen is a left-hander. It's a little bit lower in the farm system right now, and that's Drew Rom, who, as I noted, had a really good 2019 season at Del Marva, and unfortunately, we didn't get to see the chance for him to build off of that in 2020. Uh, looks like he'll head to High A in 2021. So, Bob, I'll start with you. What are some of the things with Rom that you want to watch going forward? I want to see if he's added a tick or two of velocity to his fastball. I'm not sure if that's something that's coming or not, but I feel like he's got the frame that could allow for that. And I was really impressed with his 2019 season at his age, Delmarva, working with the new you know, pitching coach, um, Ramsey, Justin Ramsey. And I'm hoping that he can just continue that progression. And I'm hoping that the year off did not affect him too much. And if anything, maybe it allowed him to really work on certain things that he needs to work on. But 
He's a guy I think is a sleeper in the on this list moving forward. I think he's a guy that could really make a jump here in a, in the next season or two as well. Yeah, it's, we got a trio here. These kind of soft tossing. You want to call them lefties. And, and I actually like the order they came out in though because you know Wells relies on his command. Rom did showcase pretty good command, but he's got the swing and miss stuff. Uh, and uh, I think you see a much higher ceiling, not much, a little bit higher ceiling with Drew Rahm there. Um, he mentioned a fantastic season as a 19-year-old in Delmarva uh, against guys two, three years older than he was. Uh, so that's that's great to see. I know he pitched in some random pop-up league this summer uh, in Kentucky, and, and the numbers weren't great, but they don't really mean anything. Uh, so we won't dive into them. But yeah, if, if that fastball is there and working, I think Rom is someone who we could see climb up the ranks pretty well. And if if you're a Steve Molesky guy, uh, I feel like Drew Rahm is his guy. Like he is, he is to Drew Rahm is to Steve Molesky as like Brandon Hanafy is to me. I get that vibe. Uh, so I'm gonna go with Steve Molesky and, and buy into the hype there with Drew Rahm. So Nick Benson, we do have kind of a trio of soft tossing lefties in this group, and I'm gonna throw out the last one right now, and that's Kevin Smith, the pitcher the Orioles acquired from the Mets in exchange for Miguel Castro back in August. Once again, not a guy whose stuff suggested he should get a lot of strikeouts, but yet he's been successful in the minor leagues, hits a double A in 2019, likely ticketed for Norfolk in 2021. So Nick, I'll start with you. What is, what is your impression of Smith been as you've learned more about him since he came over from the Mets? And do you think he's somebody we see in the majors, if not by the end of 2021, then early in 2022? As someone that the Mets thought could make their starting rotation, and he's someone that when you watch, you know, nothing really stands out. I don't think there's really too much in his repertoire or anything to get excited about necessarily, but you know, he's ranked above Rom and Wells, I think, because Smith gets results. I mean, he needed no time to get from college to double A ball. He was a Mets top prospect, top 10 prospect. He was a Mets minor league pitcher of the year in 2019. So the guy gets results and, and you read about his just his personal makeup and attitude on the mound and how he approaches the game and the behind the scenes stuff are off the charts when it comes to Kevin Smith. And so, yeah, he might ha- not have the high velocity fastball. He might not have a slider that's going to, you know, a plus plus slider or anything like that. Uh, but he gets results and he gets it done somehow. And so for me, like it's worked for him up to this point, I, I think I can continue. Uh, up at the AAA level. And this is someone who I think does compete for a rotation spot by the end of the year. We see him come up. Yeah, Dan Zimborski told me we should rank him top five based on <laughs> his projections. But uh, no, I actually think he might be a guy that surprises that you hear in spring training about a guy who's surprisingly competing for that fifth starter spot. I think he could be a name in that mix with Bruce Zimmerman and uh, Jorge Lopez. But yeah, Nick said it pretty much. He's going to go to AAA if he doesn't make the roster and he's just going to be a guy that goes out and gets puts numbers up, even if it doesn't look like he should be putting the numbers that he is putting up and he'll get his shot, whether it's this year or early next year, like you said, Zach. And I think, you know, hopefully he makes the most of his opportunity when it comes because there's a lot of guys coming right behind him that could overtake that spot. We also forgot that Tom Eshelman is back. So he has to compete with, Oof, with Eshelman. Never so. mind. Never mind. <laughs> Yeah, in a normal show, that would have probably been the first item we discussed. <laughs> yeah. So we're now into the 15 to 11 range, but I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and go to our 13th ranked prospect. 
and that's Zach Lothar. And I'm basically just going to continue the discussion on left-handed pitchers who don't throw hard but have been able to get swings and misses, have been successful at every level of the minors. And I think that Lothar is really the textbook example of that in the Orioles' farm system because he's been around for a few years now. He's going to head to AAA. I think he's a guy that if there had been a full season in 2020, would have been in the majors before the year ended because he's been so durable and so consistent in his approach that I, I didn't really have a lot of questions about whether or not he was going to be successful enough in Norfolk to make the major leagues. That said, there is still some questions about whether or not the deception that he has been able to uh, achieve with hitters is going to translate at the higher levels and whether he's going to be a starter or a reliever. Yet, of that group of left-handers, the soft-tossing guys like Wells, Rom, Smith, and Lothar, Lothar comes out ahead of that group. So I'll start with Bob. What separates Lothar a little bit for you compared to the other left-handers in the system right now? I feel like it's just consistency uh, throughout the minor league level as he's progressed. And just, I think this stuff is, might be a tick better. So, God, it's really rinse and repeat what we've said for the last couple guys. But I just think that he's put himself at the head of the pack just based on the progression of where he's been in his career. I don't know. <laughs> I wish I had a better answer. Yeah, it's look, hard to distinguish them. Yeah, it, it is. And Lothar's a guy, you know, that, that fastball, he's someone who you know, I watched a lot, and especially when he was in Frederick. I got to watch him a lot down there. Um, got to watch a little golf with him up in the press box at Frederick one day. Uh, so that was fun. When he was supposed to be charting, and he wasn't charting. I want to <laughs> call him out there. Uh, but, you know, Lothar's a guy that the fastball moves. Um, and you can tell he works fast on the mound. He doesn't get phased easily at all. You can see the high IQ when he's out there working. He knows what he has to do. He can hit his spots. But like you said, it's like the chasing. You see the walk rates going up and the strike rates are going down as he's moved up through the system. And so when he gets to AAA next year, can he continue to get those strikeouts? And so that's why I'm I'm going with not because I don't I think he's a failed starting pitching prospect. You know, I, I that's just a pet peeve of mine that I hate when people talk about guys like that. You know, when we talk about Hunter Harvey a couple of years ago, I think Zach Lothar is a really good pitcher, and I think he could be really good at the bullpen. And that's not because he's a terrible starting pitcher. It's because that's where I think he could make his money. And so, but we'll see what happens when he gets in that AAA rotation. Yeah, I would be shocked if he, I would not be surprised if he ends up in the bullpen uh, when all is said and done. I still think that the Orioles at least bring him to the majors as a starter and give him a little bit of a trial run, uh, mainly because of the durability. This is a guy that's worked a lot of innings in the minor leagues, never really shown a lot of wear and tear. So I think that maybe by July or August, he has a shot to stick in the rotation for a little while, and then the Orioles can decide going forward if that's where he should end up or if he's going to go to the bullpen. But regardless, I think he has the makings of a guy who's going to stick around the majors for a while. I'm going to backtrack now to the number 15 prospect on the list, and that's Adam Hall, who feels like a little bit is in the same mold as Ryan McKenna in that he's a guy that has been overshadowed in the past year by prospects that were brought in from outside the organization, whether it's through the draft or through trades. Yet Hall's a little younger than McKenna, uh, coming off of a good season at Delmarva in 2019, the main questions that seem to surround him are whether or not he's going to hit the ball consistently enough and hit the ball hard enough at the higher levels of the minors to take advantage of his speed, which everyone raves about. 
So, Nick, where do you stand on Hall now, and what are your expectations for him uh, when he gets back on the field next this season? I'm not a hot take guy, but I'm going to throw one out there and say Adam Hall has a monster year, uh, and we're talking about him as like a possible starting second baseman within the next year or two. Um, you don't need the power if you're going to play second base, which you know, he really hasn't had any of, but he's had 55 stolen bases over the last two years. He can stretch out singles into doubles, doubles into triples. Uh, he does have a really good glove. It may not be shortstop quality, but he can play second base really well. Um, he's only 21 years old, and he came out of Canada. And, you know, no disrespect to Canada, but he's, I don't think he's facing a lot of high-quality competition up there as a 16, 17-year-old. Uh, so I think the last 2019, I want to say last year, but it's 2021 now, 2019, you start to see him finally settle in. So did that 2020 uh, no minor league season, did that hurt him? Probably. Uh, that's a guy that I think could be hit or miss here with that, but he's someone who, if he gets back on the horse in 2021, I think could be a high riser in this system. That's just me. And I know a lot of people have pretty much completely written him off, uh, which I can see and I get, but this is just one of my guys that I'm hitching my wagon to here. So prove me right. I like that hot take. I'm a big Adam Hall guy myself, but let's just hope he handles pressure well, because there's a stampede coming behind him of middle infield prospects that could easily pass him by if he doesn't, you know, get out on the right foot this year. But I have faith in him. I think he's going to be able to hit for enough average, and he's got a good on-base skill and speed to at least stay in the mix for a starting second baseman job long term. So, yeah, I agree with Nick. He's going to have a big season, and he's going to put himself back firmly into that map. Him and Taron Vavra will be competing for the long-term second base job. So since Bob brought him up, I'll now go to Taron Vavra, who was ranked 12th on this list. Uh, he came over with Tyler Nevin in that trade uh, with the Rockies for Michael Givens back in August. Vavra, who won the South Atlantic League MVP in 2019, is someone that is just praised for his approach to the game and his fundamentals. He works his count really well. He doesn't give away at bats, can get a lot of walks. Not necessarily a ton of power, but a good overall hit tool. And the Orioles seem to be experimenting with him in center field a little bit, which seems to suggest that they think there's enough athleticism for him to possibly play at least two, maybe three spots if they view him as a shortstop going forward at the major league level. So, Bob, um, as you've kind of learned more about Vavra since he came over in August, what are your thoughts on him? And do you think he's somebody that, even though he last played at low A, could be in the major leagues pretty quickly. Yeah, actually, I do. I'm I'm pretty high on Vavra. I thought I was going to be way higher than you guys. I was glad you had him pretty much right where I had had him landing. Um, but yeah, I do think he could be the starting second baseman before the end of the season for the Orioles. I just really like his approach to the plate and the swing he puts on the ball. I just feel like he's a guy that is being underrated. Like as, as far as Nevin coming back from the Rockies being a boring prospect, I feel like this is a guy that is the opposite of that. I feel like he's going to grab our attention pretty quick once we get him up in the majors. And yeah, if he could be like a Ben Zerbers type where he can play multiple positions, even better. Get in where you fit in. Yeah, I, I agree with Vavra. I said in our report that's coming out on BaltimoreSportsLife.com, like, circle his name, don't forget it. Uh, this is a guy who, I mean, he walked 62 times and he struck out 62 times in A-ball uh, in 2019 in 102 games. Uh, so 
32 doubles. Uh, so, you know, one double every other game. I mean, it's or one double every third game. I mean, that's, that's fantastic numbers in his first real big full season in the major leagues. And when you look at the Orioles 40-man roster, there's just not a lot of these middle infield types. I know Michael Elias will bring in anybody that can play multiple positions. Uh, but, you know, there's just not a whole lot of talent there on that major league roster on the infield. So I think Vavra is somebody who can come in and, you know, would right now, would you want him over a guy like a Stevie Wilkerson? I, I think absolutely. He's better than the Stevie Wilkerson right now. Um, you look at some of the other guys they brought in, like Greg Cullens and A.J. Graffinino's Vavra, I think just and what little bit we know about him is a much better prospect than those guys. I think this is a guy is that we all should be excited about and someone who's probably going to be a top 10 prospect by midseason form on this Orioles farm system, which is one of the top farm systems in all of baseball. So, yeah, circle the name. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to see Vavra when the uh, they get back on the field in the spring. Uh, just because of everything you're hearing about him and his overall approach to the game is so good that I think if he does end up in AAA, which, Bob, that's where you had him in your projections uh, a couple months ago, correct? Correct, yeah. I mean, Colorado is notoriously slow, moving the prospects up level to level, so I just feel like between that and then the off time from 2020, I think they're going to jump him right up up to AAA. Yeah, and I, I suspect he's going to be a guy that's going to handle that jump really well. Um, I do want to bring up a prospect who Vavra ultimately moved down the list, but do not view the guy moving down a couple of slots as us not thinking that he's a good prospect because the player I'm talking about is Kobe Mayo, who um, was drafted in the fourth round by the Orioles in June, a uh, high school third baseman, earning really, really high marks for two tools, his power and his arm. Questions because of his size about whether or not he sticks at third base, but the arm should give him a little bit more flexibility where he plays defensively. The power, I, I'm really excited to see him hitting long home runs at Delmarva uh, once the 2021 season rolls around. So I wanted to emphasize, and I'm sure that both of you, starting with Nick, want to emphasize, Mayo is two spots lower than he was in July, but that's not because we think he's somehow a worse prospect now. Yeah, no, it's just the influx of the talent and Mayo, and he's only 19 years old, so there's a wide range of outcomes here. He could be a guy who hits 30 plus home runs in a year at the major league level. He could also be a guy who never really pans out because he can't hit for high average and strikes out a lot. But he's such a young kid. He was a Florida commit. Uh, I, I mean, this is the guy. This is why you went Heston Kerstad with the number two overall pick last year to get Baumlers and Mayo type guys. Uh, and I, I mean, I just keep going back. I always mention the exit velocity numbers. I mean, his exit velo numbers are not that far from a Renato Nunez, who, you know, maybe is not the greatest overall player. The Orioles just let him go for nothing, obviously. <laughs> but the, that guy hit the ball extremely hard. And Kobe Mayo is already putting up those types of numbers. He's pretty close there. So if he's doing that as an 18, 17, 18 year old, you know, imagine what he can do three years from now after being in this Orioles system. Like this, this is a new Orioles minor league system that, you know, I, I don't think we fully understand exactly how big of a jumps the, a lot of these prospects are taking uh, with these guys that the Orioles have working with them down in the minor leagues. And hopefully in 2021, we start to see that. And Mayo could be one of those guys that we see take a massive leap when we finally get to watch him play baseball. Yeah, couldn't agree more with Nick. And I've always said Kobe Mayo is a right-handed Samuel Basalo, so got to like what you see there. Uh, 
no, just he's got the power in the arm, just like Basalo. But um, yeah, I'm super excited to see Mayo get out there, see what he can do average-wise. We know he's got the power. Will it translate to games? He's got the arm. How's his fielding skills? Is he going to be another Ryan Mountcastle that has to move all the way around just to try to fit his bat into the lineup? I doubt it, but we will see. And I'm starting to really get excited about baseball season. So if you have been listening to us rattle off some of these names and aren't quite familiar with them, um, the next name is someone you used to be very familiar with, and that's Keegan Aiken, who comes in 11th on our list. Um, Pits well in the major leagues in 2020, um, but goes into 2021 with his prospect status still intact. Uh, The result of Aiken's pretty impressive performance in the major leagues is that despite the influx of talent that has come into the Orioles' farm system since July, Aiken managed to jump from 14th to 11th on our list. I was close to putting him in the top 10, uh, but I ultimately went with Jordan Westbrook in that last spot. The thing, though, for Aiken that made me feel comfortable pushing him up to 11th was that with what I saw last year with his ability to generate swings and misses, move the fastball around down the zone, I became a little bit more convinced that he can remain a starter at the major league level, uh, even if his ceiling is as a number four or five guy on a contending team. Bob, what was your impression of Aiken last year, and how do you feel about him coming in 11th on this list? I'm pretty high on him now. I mean, I think he did about as well as you could expect, given the amount of time that he got at the major league level last year. Um, I think for me, what rose him up a little bit was the fact that I feel a lot more comfortable with him at least being a setup reliever at the major league level. Like he, bare minimum, I feel like he's going to be a big left-handed arm that you can bring in out of relief. But like you said, I think there is a chance now that I think he could stick to the back end of a rotation, give you five, six solid innings. And uh, if he continues to improve, I think he's working on his off-speed stuff. And it, I think there has been a little bit of improvement from when we last saw him pitch in the minor leagues to last year. And hey, keep going. And maybe he'll, he will stick in that rotation. Yeah, he's a lot more confident at the major league level. And you saw some sometimes when he was in AAA, you could tell in the very first inning, within the first two, three batters, you could tell it was going to be a bad night for Keegan Aiken. Um, he did let that show uh, pretty quickly, but you really didn't see that when he was up with the Orioles last year. My favorite stat of his is that 14.7% swinging strike rate, which of all major league starters that pitched at least 20 innings, that's the 12th highest rate in all of baseball. Uh, that's fantastic. It was only 25 innings he pitched. Yes, it's a small sample size, but... Again, this is someone who I think proved his worth uh, last year at the Orioles. He cemented a spot in the starting rotation for 2021, and, and we'll see where he goes from here, but I think the Orioles are, are much more confident. I think fans should be a lot more confident in, in Keegan Aiken sticking around and being a valuable contributor to, to this team next year. The other young starter that came up uh, from the alternate site last summer and drew rave reviews was Dean Kramer. Kramer comes into 2021 as the eighth-ranked prospect on our list. Um, it was hard to not be impressed with what I saw from Kramer last year. I love the fastball-curveball combination. Um, generated a lot of weak contact. I know that there has been some criticism of Kramer's walk rate, but a lot of that can be, and this is what happens when you're looking at things over a small sample size, a lot of that can be attributed to one bad inning against the Yankees in a start where he was actually pretty effective overall. And that was in his major league debut. So I'm really high on Kramer. 
coming into this year. Um, I'll start with uh, you, Nick. What was your impression of Kramer uh, in the majors last year, and what hopes do you have for him going forward? Pretty poised. I mean, first two starts were against the Yankees in back-to-back days, or back-to-back starts, and that's tough to do for any pitcher. I know they didn't have, uh, you know, the big the big boppers in their lineup. Giancarlo Stanton wasn't there. I don't think Aaron Judge was playing at that time. But it's still the New York Yankees. Luke Voigt was still in that lineup, and Dean Kramer didn't give up any home runs in his small sample size. A lot of strikeouts, uh, low 2.76 FIP across 18.2 innings, which is pretty solid. Um, the big thing with me was he never threw a first pitch strike. So he was consistently, it was like 40%, which ranks like 300-something in the major leagues last year. Like, it was terrible. Um so if he could throw first pitch strikes and work ahead and counts, I think you start to see a much improved Kramer from what we saw in that small sample size. He had a lot of success last year, and he was always working from behind in the count. I think that kind of speaks uh, to how good uh, he can be in the in the major league rotation next year. I thought his stuff looked really good, better than even I expected, and I felt like I was pretty high on him coming in. I just feel like he's really good at tunneling those pitches of his to make them look similar coming out of the hand. And I like his mound presence. I like he just seems really comfortable out there. And I am very excited to see what he can do. I think he will definitely stick in the rotation for the Orioles, at least for 21, 2021, bare minimum. So one spot below Kramer on that uh, list is another right-hander that uh, we're all very intrigued by, and that's Michael Ballman. Ballman was at the alternate training site at Bowie over the summer. Uh, his time there was shut down uh, a little early because of a concern over his elbow. All reports at the time were that the Orioles did not see that as being a serious issue, and we haven't heard anything to the contrary since. Um, basically, Ball, uh, Ballman throws hard, tops out at 99, generally runs 93 to 95. After a big season in 2019, a lot of people that I think were borderline on Ballman turned because not only was he so success- successful that year, but in their eyes, he looked more like a starter. Still, though, you do hear that theory thrown out that if the Orioles wanted to, they can move Ballman into the closer's role uh, now, and he'd find success pretty quickly. So, Bob, I'll start with you. What are your expectations for Ballman going into 2021? I want to hear a clean bill of health from the first couple of days of spring training when pitchers and catchers report. Number one, that is what I, I need to see. But um, yeah, I, I think you give him every chance to be a starter. I think I heard some talk towards the end of 2019 that he might be a borderline top 100 guy then. And I don't see any reason why that couldn't still be the case. I think he's got he showed that his stuff is good enough to be in a major league rotation and I think you got to give him every chance to fail as a starter because you know even if he doesn't work out long-term there, you can always transition him to the bullpen and play up his fastball and his breaking pitches there. Yeah, he's 6'4", 225 pounds. He's, he's a big man that throws the ball extremely hard. And he that shutout, the, the no-hitter, sorry, the no-hitter he threw in Bowie last year, uh, the nine-inning no-hitter, he was throwing 95-96 uh, in that very last out of the game. Uh, I watched that sort of like three times. I mean, it was just so fantastic to watch. And 
it's really hard to temper expectations, I think, with Bauman. He's one of the more exciting prospects in this system now that you start to see a lot of talk about people who are a lot smarter than, you know, the three of us are when it comes to these prospects that say, you know, Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall are fantastic prospects. They deserve all the praise in the system. But there's really no reason to believe that Bauman can't be the number three pitcher right behind them in the starting rotation. I think that's high praise. And he is a guy who is top 100, has top 100 consideration. Um, you know, maybe we're getting way too excited about him, but I'm going to go with it because I, I'm i putting my trust into this Orioles system to develop pitchers now. And it feels really good to do that with a guy like Bauman. And like you said, if he's a closer, you know, we know John Mioli and Baseball America worked together on that list. It said Bauman had the top slider in the whole system. Uh, and he's, you know, the future closer of this team, which would be fantastic. I think he's you look at a guy like Hunter Harvey, I think Bauman would be better than Hunter Harvey. Um, it just because he's a more powerful guy, a more durable guy. And so if that's the case, great. But I guess, yeah, you, you got to give him every chance to fail as a starter and see what he can do in AAA next year. I think this will be really good. Exactly. I'm really looking forward to him getting out on the mound in uh, Norfolk and hopefully getting to Baltimore before the season ends. Uh, I'll go to the prospect that's ranked number seven, and that's outfielder Yusniel Diaz. If you have listened to this show before, you have heard us preach to not get prospect fatigue with Diaz, um, that all three of us still really like him. We think he would have already exhausted his prospect eligibility, if not for some of the health issues that he had in 2019 with injuries. Um, yet he comes in one spot lower because Gunnar Henderson uh, and he flip-flop. And Henderson is a guy that now has basically moved his way into the conversation as a friend's top 100 prospect overall in the minor leagues. So I'm going to make that point, at least from my perspective. UCL Diaz did not move down because we're tired of UCL Diaz. UCL Diaz moved down because everyone is now zeroing in on Gunnar Henderson as someone who's going to be a quick riser in this farm system. We're going to get more into Henderson in a minute, as well as Jordan Westberg, who came in 10th on this list. But Nick, I, what are your thoughts right now on Diaz? I mean, you'd like to have heard more out of camp. You heard so much about Grayson Rodriguez. You heard so much about Gunnar Henderson, uh, even uh, Cumberland, the, the catching prospect. You heard so much about these guys, but you really didn't hear a whole lot about Diaz, which I think continued to put him kind of further and further out of a lot of Orioles fans' minds. But yeah, I think, you know, he, we like you mentioned, we talk about him all the time, that we're all big fans of his. There's still a lot there. It's a massive arm out in right field. He gets on base. He hits the ball very well. He may not have a lot of power, but he's got a lot of tools that stand out. And, you know, like I said, if, if it's Santander and Diaz and Mountcastle, Hayes, Kirstad, like that's a really exciting group. And it's going to be a battle to see who sticks on this roster. And, and Diaz could be getting his opportunity pretty soon in 2021, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything we've said in the past still still holds strong. It's just actually I had Diaz ahead of Gunnar Henderson on my initial updated list, and then I finally caved to the pressure you guys put on me. It was too much. I had to flip him back uh, to seventh. But no, I still like him. I think, you know, if this Santander uh, or Santander trade heat heats up even more, he could be the opening day right fielder. Who knows? But I think still like him as a solid middle of the order bat with like a 280 average 20 to 25 home run you know peak solid player 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree, Bob. I, I think that Diaz is still a solid player, and I think as long as he is able to stay on the field at AAA over the first month or two, we'll see him in the major leagues um, well before the All-Star break. So I am now going to uh, turn our attention to Jordan Westberg, uh, the t- 2020 uh, draft pick by the Orioles out of Mississippi State, who ranks 10th on this list, a shortstop who earns a lot of praise for his raw power and overall athleticism, and then a shortstop who's younger than Westberg that's drawing even more attention, and that's Gunnar Henderson, a uh, big left-handed hitter with a good power stroke, good arm, and the one thing you seem to be hearing less and less of after Henderson's time at the summer camp and then down um, in Sarasota, you're not hearing as many questions about whether or not he's going to stick at shortstop. They're still there, but they're not quite as persistent as they were before. So, Nick, looking at those two guys, right now we have Henderson, all three of us ranked Henderson above um, Westberg. But what do you see in those two players? Your future starting second base and shortstop, hopefully. I mean, I'm sitting here now, when we go over this list, like I'm just imagining uh, Jordan Westberg at second, Gunnar Henderson at shortstop, Ryan Mountcastle at first base and Kobe Mayo at third base. And that's the infield that takes you to the World Series. Hopefully that pans out. That's many years away. But Westberg is a guy, you know, who got you know, Baseball America's Top 100 list just came out. And Westberg was a guy who at least one person had him on their list to be considered for the Top 100. And he hasn't even played a game yet. Uh, and he was, you know, a, a much later pick in the draft last year. Uh, so that's exciting to see. Uh, if It seems the big question seems to be the power. Does he tap into that raw power that he has? Does he turn into game power? And if so, you're going to see a really special prospect, I think. Um, someone who, he was drafted, what, 32nd, 33rd overall, I think. And a lot of the reports say that he really fell into the Orioles' lap. So he should have been drafted a lot higher. Uh, so we'll see how he pans out there. I'm ex- He's at the top of my list, uh, right behind Gunnar Henderson, who's the guys I'm most excited to see. I do, like you mentioned, the fact that there's less and less talk about, well, he's probably a third baseman. You probably got to move him to the outfield. Like, no, this is your shortstop. This is a potential all-star shortstop of the future. Um, are we getting too excited too early? Probably. He's only 19 years old. But another guy who had top 100 consideration at 19 years old, someone with elite tools across the board. Um, and these are the guys, Orioles fans, you really start to get excited about that make up the core of this future Orioles lineup. Yeah, I was listening to the Prospects Live Top 100, maybe Top 150 fantasy prospects that they did to kind of counteract Baseball America's real thing. But these guys actually, they study and scout prospects just like for regular baseball because it's kind of similar going in. But what got me excited about Gunnar Henderson is one of the guys on there. Like, this was an hour-long show talking about their entire list, and a big chunk of it was all about Gunnar Henderson. This guy had an Orioles connection and said that Gunnar Henderson's max exit velocity was 110 compared to Wander Franco's 105 at the same age. The average exit velocity for Gunnar Henderson was 88 miles an hour. For Wander Franco, was 86. The uh, launch angle for Wander Franco was like 1.2 degrees, and... I think Gunnar Henderson was like 6 or 16%. I couldn't hear quite much, but it was higher. <laughs> so not that these guys are comparable in any way right now, but just to put it in perspective, at least metric-wise at the alternate camp, he is putting up monster numbers for his age. And to me, that is extremely exciting. And I just want to see him 
put into the game action in 2021. And sky's the limit. He could easily be our top prospect at some point, especially if he can prove to stick at shortstop. And as far as Jordan Westberg, that's the one thing that you kept hearing good reports for him all summer long too. And the fact that it does look like he can stick up the middle. He doesn't look like he's a guy that's going to have to move off either. That helps him a lot. And yeah, I was surprised to see he got consideration for the top 100 as well. Yeah, I want to see more of both guys next year. Everything I'm hearing about Westberg, though, I don't see why he couldn't be a 2020 second baseman in his peak at the major league level. And I'll throw this out about Gunnar Henderson. We should stress he's 19, so he's young. There's still a lot of unknowns. But the comp that's getting thrown around more and more by other outlets to cover prospects uh, is Corey Seager. And if this is the next Corey Seager, that's a really good player that the Orioles have at number six on their uh, top 30 prospect rankings right now. So now that we've moved through the uh, initial six through 30 on this list, we'll now uh, wrap this up with a discussion on our top five. And I'm just going to jump right into what I think was one of the hardest decisions for me on this list, which was how to rank Ryan Mountcastle and Heston Kerstad. Back in July, I put Kerstad ahead of Mountcastle. However, this time around, I reversed it and I put Mountcastle at number four and Kerstad fifth. And that's how they ended up on this list. Uh, Mountcastle comes in fourth, Kerstad fifth. And the reason for that was that after I saw Mountcastle in the major league last year, I was less concerned about his plate approach. I think a lot of the improvements he showed, um, increasing his walk rate from what it had been in the minor leagues, um, is going to be sustainable. And although I'm not going to call him a gold glove winner at any position that he plays, whether that's first base or left field, I saw enough to make me believe that if you stick, have to stick him in left field next year, the defense is not going to set you back significantly. And that if he does end up at first base long term, he's going to settle in there nicely. So I do think Mountcastle is a better prospect than he was six months ago. But uh, Nick, what are your thoughts on that? Because I believe you had Kerstad ahead of Mountcastle, correct? Yeah, I did. And I think the biggest separator for me was just you know, Kerstad's power tool, I think, is, is a lot better. There's more potential for more home runs there with Kerstad, especially hitting as a left-hander at Camden Yards. And the defense, you know, you see a lot of the reports coming out of Arkansas that he's a pretty solid right fielder. The guy that's not going to hurt you at all out there with a strong arm. Uh, Mount Castle, you know, I, I hate that the discussion is always about his defense because he plays a, a good first base. He plays a decent left field. Um, so I don't think I think people blow the defensive concerns out of the water a bit with Ryan Mountcastle, to be totally honest, especially when you're playing left field out in Camden Yards. Mountcastle is more than capable of handling that position for a few years, I think. Uh, but I did have Kerstad ahead of Mountcastle just because of the power and, and more solid defensive abilities out there in right field. But yeah, Mountcastle, I think, blew a lot of us away. And I really liked watching Mountcastle's at-bats. Uh, even on his strikeouts, you could tell he knew exactly what he did wrong just about every single time. As soon as he swung the bat, he knew he shouldn't have. And so I think we saw like what, like an 8% walk rate last year in a very small sample size, which was like double his career high. But I think you saw a lot of gains in that aspect of his game. So both of them are going to be super exciting prospects to watch in the future, no doubt. Yeah, the reason I put Mountcastle ahead of Kerstad, it was close. Definitely the toughest decision up at the top of the list for me as well. Uh, to me, it's just 
we knew Mountcastle was going to be good based on what he did in the minor leagues. And it's when that uh, the metrics, the stats meet the the eye test, it all came together and just showed, I think he could be the MVP of the team in 2021 and any year moving forward right up there with Adley and all these offensive guys. I think he's just looked so professional as a hitter up at the plate. I saw nothing on defense that had me worrying. This is a full-time DH moving forward, at least not anytime soon. And yeah, I just think Mountcastle went from that guy that's always at the top of a prospect list to that guy who is your number three, number four hitter in the season coming up. Yeah, that that was the separator ultimately for me with Mountcastle. I will say this though, which is that Mountcastle goes into twenty twenty one with very little uh prospect eligibility remaining. So although we're not gonna update this list again until July, Mountcastle's uh prospect eligibility should be up well before then. So Kerstad uh should at least be back in the top four by then if he hits it expected um in the minors next year. Now it's our number three and number two prospects, uh, and it's the two pitchers that everyone is most excited to watch uh, just throughout the whole Orioles organization, I think, in 2021, and that's left-handed pitcher D.L. Hall, who comes in at number three, and number two is Grayson Rodriguez, the right-hander. I know that, and for good reason, Orioles fans are a little jaded when it comes to pitching prospects. It's been a long time since the Orioles have had sustained success uh, with homegrown starters coming through the minor leagues and having good major league careers. Um, Bob, why might Rodriguez and Hall be the ones to break that trend? When elite talent meets elite, um, I don't know what you would call uh, Justin Ramsey, Mike Elias, elite analytics, you know, when those combine, it seems like a pretty good recipe for success. And uh, nothing got me more excited about the minor league season than the link that Nick shared on the Twitter about Grayson Rodriguez and how he is like the one guy that could be just a true number one pitcher in the and all of the prospect list. I think it was like out of the right-handed pitchers, he could be the guy with the highest uh, ceiling. And that's that's crazy to hear, especially for an Orioles fan who – you know, pitching, God, the Calvary, the Calvary, the Calvary. That's all we ever hear about. But it seems like between D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez, bare minimum, we should expect Chris Tillman levels of pitching. And I don't know, just seems like the sky's the limit with these guys at the top of the of the rotation. And it's the stuff, it's the command, not maybe not command for D.L. Hall, but at least for Grayson Rodriguez, it's it's they, they've got great stuff, and we've got a great team in place to get the most out of it. I mean, Hall is a guy, you don't find too many lefties that can throw 96 miles an hour and hold that velocity throughout a start. The strikeout numbers are ridiculous. I mean, you watch him pitch live, it's, it's something really special to watch. Um, I think being completely realistic, if just one of D.L. Hall or Grayson Rodriguez hits, it's a win for the Orioles. You just need one. If you get both, fantastic. We're, we're talking about a whole nother level here. But if just one of them hits, uh, you're talking about a really solid rotation going into place here. And if Grayson Rodriguez isn't a top of the rotation arm, but can be a really good number two, uh, that's a win as well. Uh, I mean, like you said, MLB Pipeline just had him as number nine overall, but had the highest ceiling, had the highest rated changeup. Um, 
you talk about just the AL East is going to be a lot of fun with Grace Rodriguez. They had Nate Pearson and Luis Patino is now with the Tampa Bay Rays. That's scary to see. He was such an exciting prospect with the Padres. Now he's with the Rays. He's probably going to be like the, one of the top pitchers in all of baseball because that's what the Rays do. But the Orioles are working towards that. And Grace Rodriguez and D.L. Hall are going to go a long way in, in easing the, the fears of Orioles fans, I think. Um, the big thing with Hall, though, is, is those walks. Can they come down? Because they were enormous throughout his minor league career. Uh, but, yeah, these two guys, A and B, it's hard to separate them, too. Just true elite talents in this system. And it's really hard to think. We're talking about future number, potentially a number one starter for the Baltimore Orioles, a playoff team. And we're talking about international guys being comp to Alex Rodriguez and Carlos Correa. Like this is the conversation that conversation that we're actually having tonight, which is amazing. And <laughs> is this real life? <laughs> yeah, I've had to ask myself that um, looking at this list several times as we work through the show. I would honestly have not expected us, uh, given everything that happened over the last twelve months, to be in the position where we're looking at the Orioles farm system having improved as much as it has. But I, I hope that that's the takeaway for a lot of the listeners tonight. And now, number one, no surprise, it's uh, Adley Rutschman. Who, and there's going to be a lot of time over the course of this year to talk about when he gets to the majors, whether he's more Buster Posey or Matt Wieters. There's a lot of discussions to be had with Adley Rutschman. But I'll just say this. Consensus, top three, top two prospect in the game right now. I think he's far and away the best prospect in a rapidly improving farm system. Uh, so I'll start with you, Bob. Just kind of give us what's your general expectation for Rutzman next season. Well, um, I'm expecting him to finally just show exactly why he is the number two prospect and was our number one overall pick a couple of years ago. After he was drafted, he had mono. He, he was weakened uh, going into his initial minor league uh, play with Aberdeen and Delmarva. And he still put up some pretty good numbers, especially at Aberdeen towards the end of that run there before he got promoted. And then, of course, 2020 gets wiped out. So this is a guy Orioles fans have been hearing about how he's the savior. He's the, the next big, you know, huge prospect, Manny Machado type hitter and at catcher coming up, but we have no one's really been able to follow his career necessarily so far. So I really want him to just come out of the gate strong, or at least just show what he is. He's got great patience at the plate. He's got tremendous power. He's going to be catching the Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall at Double A Billy at least to start the season. And I just want him to play and just get these games under his belt uh, that actually count and start the path towards the major leagues because. Right now, he could be a catcher at the major league level on his defense alone, and the offensive potential is off the charts. So it's extremely exciting, and he will probably be the number one prospect in baseball by July when Wanda Franco graduates with the Tampa Bay Rays. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know what else to say about Richmond. Like you said, the, really the only question mark is when does he make his debut? And I, I hope if it's not in 2021, I, I won't mind that because it depends on which pitchers do the Orioles bring up? You know, if they're going to keep these guys at double AA, A, triple A level, I'd rather see Rutschman stay there with them, stay in triple A with Bauman and Lothar and Hall, and continue to work with them because we know that that's the future of this Orioles rotation and behind the plate. Uh, and so, if 
if you're going to come up on a team that has 45 wins at the end of the year and catch you know, who and catch Tom Eshelman at the end of the season, I don't I don't care. I don't want to see that. Uh, stay in the minor leagues and catch Deal Hall. Continue to work with those guys. Um, you know, you look at someone like San Francisco had Joey Bart, who's the consensus number two catching prospect behind Allie Rutschman in the game. And Bart really struggled. And now I've seen talks last couple of days about the Giants probably trading Joey Bart. Teams are asking for him. Uh, so they could be moving on from Bart already. Uh, like, that's not going to happen with Allie Rutschman. Uh, this is, I think this is a guy who I just want to see. I don't even want to see the numbers. I don't really care about the offensive numbers, to be honest, next year. I just want to see him form those relationships with these pitchers. And the big thing that's impressed me the most out of Bowie last year at the alternate site was that when these guys were asked, you know, what stood out to you at camp? Who stood out to you at camp? Everyone said Adley Rutschman. And it wasn't because the light tower power or anything like that. It was. It seemed like it was more so how he controlled the games behind the plate and how he made them a better pitcher. And, and that, I think, means a lot more right now. And that's what I want to see. So... He's number one in baseball. He's a future Hall of Famer. Build a statue now. <laughs> they were also talking about his use of the driver at Top Golf. So don't forget yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, Rutzman is a you know I think far and away the best prospect in a rapidly improving farm system. Um, and regardless of where he starts and finishes 2021, I know I'll be really excited to follow along. Um, so this was concludes our top 30 countdown um, of the best prospects in the Orioles system going into 2021. We're recording this on a Wednesday night, and the full list with reports uh, should be on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com sometime Thursday. So keep an eye out uh, for that if it's not already on the site by the time you listen to this. Um, and when you visit the site... Not only uh, read that report, but check out our other content on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. And be sure to hop on the message board to discuss the Orioles, the Ravens, the Terps, and more. Uh, before we wrap up here, uh, just final thoughts on the list as, as a whole. And I'll start with you, Nick. Yeah, it's a fantastic list. A lot of fun putting it together. It was really difficult putting it together. But I think we could see a lot of changes when we update this later in the year once we get to see guys play. Um, you know, minor league baseball is going to be back next year. It might be delayed a little bit, but we're going to have a full season. Uh, things in the country as a whole look to be on the up and up. Today was a pretty great day in the United States of America. Um, and I think just overall, too, uh, to wrap my piece up here, I think check us out also. Like All of our social media accounts have been great. We have, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram now, which are brand new. I don't really know what I'm doing on Instagram, but give us a follow there. Just search <laughs> On The Verge BSL. We've got so many new followers on Twitter. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. I was super impressed with our numbers from season one. They're fantastic. I was not expecting that at all. Um, so just thank everybody for listening and this list hopefully got you excited and we can't wait to come every week and talk about these guys with you guys. Absolutely. Couldn't have said that better myself, but, uh, as far as the list overall, yeah, it's really exciting. I think the Orioles have at least a top 10, uh, farm system in baseball and that seems to be on the rise still. But I think even if we come back in July or even at the end of the season and there's five or six graduations off of this list, I still think it's going to stand with any almost any team out there uh, with what remains. I mean, this is a deep farm system now, which is hard to believe. So it's exciting. I really, really can't wait to come on here every week and talk about the minor leagues as well as these guys when they make their major league debuts. 
Yeah, the, the takeaway for me is that this is just a much more complete farm system than it was a year ago or even six months ago. The Orioles have brought in a lot of players that I think, even if they're not particularly high-ceiling guys, the players like Taron Vavra, someone who can get on base, uh, runs well, can play multiple positions. That wasn't the type of prospect you really saw in the Orioles' farm system before. But now you have players like him in addition to the really high upside athletic guys like Jordan Westberg. We're seeing them really stockpile left-handed pitching, which is great. So I, I think as a whole, this is a much more balanced and much deeper system uh, than it has been in the recent past. And it's definitely moving up um, in terms of where it ranks across Major League Baseball. So uh, Bob mentioned this. We're going to pretty much be back on a weekly recording schedule now that we're into the new year. Um, next week... We're going to talk about the top 30 list again, but this time talk about the guys who just missed. So we're going to each, all three of us will get a chance to discuss the players that we had in our personal top 30s, but that did not make the final list, as well as some of the guys who are maybe in that 30 to 40 range right now that we think could find their way in the top 30 um, when it's updated either in July or perhaps even in the beginning of 2022. So that will be on next week's show. In the meantime, uh, give us a follow on Twitter, at BSL on the Verds. Uh, for Nick Stevens and Bob Phelan, this has been Zach Spedden. Thank you for listening.